Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff on there, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can look us up on Etsy at Terrible True Crime. And the last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show and leave us a review or a comment wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So last week, I told you guys that Ollie was going to get neutered, so he had his vet appointment last week. Everything went well. It's been kind of hard to keep him calm and not too excited like he's not allowed to do stairs or anything and we have a lot of stairs Mm. (laughs) so it's just us trying to carry him down the stairs and just making sure he doesn't run around or do too much but he's wearing a cute little onesie and he's doing just fine he's like free from the onesie in a couple days so the onesie is so cute i feel like i would just put that on him because it's cute (laughs) it's really cute i thought he would hate it more than he does he doesn't actually mind it that much but it's it's necessary for now but i'm sure he'll never want to i feel like it's better than a cone anyways so much better than a cone oh for sure yeah i feel like the cones must be so disorienting Mm -hmm. like yeah he's kind of a nightmare on walks right now because he just has like so much energy Mm -hmm. yeah he can't burn it off yeah which yeah looking forward to it just being back to normal but like i said he only has a couple days left that's pretty much how i spent my entire weekend last week but this weekend i'm headed to vancouver to visit my cousin who lives there oh that's fun yeah so i have a friday off so i have a four-day week at work and heading to vancouver it's a super short flight like it'll be really nice so i'm looking forward to it do you have any like special plans or anything specific that you're gonna go see or not really not really like i've been to vancouver before and done the more touristy stuff so it's kind of just like we're just gonna hang out go for drinks watch movies walk around shop there's a lot of vintage thrift stores and stuff that i'm really into so i'm sure she'll bring me to a ton of those but yeah she just moved into a new place so i think it's gonna just be mostly hanging out but cool. i'm looking forward to it um so on my end i mentioned a few episodes ago that i was working on my first ever garden in my backyard i call it a garden i know it's a flower bed but whatever <laughs> and i'm obsessed with how tacky it is like <laughs> i absolutely love those little statue things that you find at dollarama or home sense or whatever it is that you just put in the garden it's so cute like <laughs> tacky is my vibe for the garden so i finally really finished it, it. I spent so much time at Lowe's, like I'd say an hour just walking up and down the aisles because I was so lost. I had no idea which flowers I needed to get for the sun. If I wanted annuals or perennials, I was just like, and then there's all these like old ladies and old men like getting exactly what they need. And I'm like, can someone help me? But I was a big girl. I figured it out. So far, so good. But if they die, I'll just, you know figure it out next year with with hopefully the uh, the help of someone. My other update is that Zoe is finally officially ready for summer. She's cottage ready. We got her a life jacket. It took two tries. I bought one off Amazon and it was way too big. 
I tried to cut it and like sew it up to try to make it smaller and it was a no-go. She was like <laughs> terrified in it. Then I went to a pet store nearby and oh my God, it's such a small <laughs> life jacket. The cutest thing ever. So hopefully I can convince her to go in the water and swim with me or oh like have God. her on the kayak. I feel like she'll be really scared, but hopefully she'll get used to it and then she'll really enjoy it. It's That's so my cute. Hope. Oh, she's friggin' adorable in it. How much does she weigh? She weighs know? like just over five pounds, I think. And I really don't think she's gonna grow anymore. Like, oh, right. I, I don't not. see, yeah, I don't see her growing much more. She's like seven months, I think. Yeah, she's excited for the summer. Okay, so last week we did a current crime update and I want to do another one because I've been sending articles to Matthew because I think now that I'm like clicking on all these like current true crime stories, I just keep getting them all the time which is nice for the podcast but like terrifying for everyday life like <laughs> i'm just like there is so much crime like i know there's a lot of crime but now i'm like there's so much crime currently happening because the algorithms like got me somewhere and i just it's all i get now from my news apps so and you know what that makes me really happy that renee is the research brain for this uh podcast because i don't think i could handle that um i think this is enough for me so I'm really happy yeah. that I don't have to have all that popping uh, up for my feed. This is a lot for you considering maybe like a month before the podcast started, you did not listen, watch, or, you know, take part in any true crime or whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's the current stuff that'll get me now. Yeah. It's the unsolved and current stuff. <laughs> okay, so this week in Winnipeg, or this week for us, but probably a little bit different on the timeline but i read this this week in winnipeg police have found human remains at the brady road landfill during a search connected to the killing of rebecca contois so police searched a section of the landfill and they found partial remains on may 16th an autopsy determined that the remains were those of rebecca the police believe that some of her remains may have been taken to the landfill during a residential pickup which is which means that yeah. you put out your garbage and someone picks up your garbage and dumps it in a landfill. Like, yikes. Terrifying. So they already charged someone, which is great. So Jeremy Anthony Michael, and we don't have... He has four names. Jeremy Anthony Michael Skabicki. Yeah, Skabicki. <laughs> okay. 35 years old, and he's been charged with first-degree murder. We don't have, like, kind of all the background information, but I'm really happy that they have someone charged mm -hmm. for Rebecca's death. This is the scariest part. After he was arrested and charged, police believe that probably and could be more victims. So we might be looking at a serial killer case in Winnipeg. Okay, first of all, how does he have three, pretty much three first names? Like that's creepy to me. His parents couldn't choose. But uh, Rebecca was a 24-year-old woman and um, she grew up and was a member of the Crane River First Nation, grew up in Winnipeg. Um, and her family and a lot of her loved ones were looking for her after she'd gone missing. So uh, it's awful. And we will uh, keep an eye on this case. I'm going to need to set up some Google updates or, you know, whatever those things are once mm -hmm. the news article pops up and you get like a notification so we can try to keep track of these. But yeah, we're really sorry to Rebecca's friends and family. And we're, we're glad that uh, Jeremy Anthony Michael What's-His-Face has been charged. And <sighs> in other news... <laughs> A woman in her 20s, and this is, I, yeah, we're scared. A woman in her 20s is in hospital with critical injuries after being lit on fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you sent me this and I already had it. 
She was lit on fire in a Toronto bus, and police say it was a random attack. A 35-year-old man was arrested with charges pending, say the police. The woman remained in hospital with uh, life-threatening injuries. I haven't heard any news that she's passed, so hopefully she's doing as well as she can possibly be. She had second and third degree burns, which is so horrifying. Yeah, so, I mean, we're thinking about her. We hope that she pulls through. I don't think that we can, like, rationalize a motive behind it. I think it's just this awful... Yeah, that makes no sense to me. No. It's scary when you're thinking like you're just you're just hopping on public transit on your way to work one morning like and it's always you know keep your head up keep only one earphone in mm-hmm. don't wear headphones on public transit Mm-mm. or buses protect yourself and just be aware and like I, I wish I didn't have to say this because I wish we could just say everything is great and we don't need to be careful but <sighs> we need to be careful yeah and finally in crime news I'll tr- honestly there was way more this this week i mean i tried to do like two to three every episode but uh calgary police and family members of a 35 year old woman found dead in the ramsey neighborhood in february continue to search for answers about her death at about 11:50 a.m on february 25th her body was found in a residential waste container in the 700 block of 24th avenue southwest in calgary the woman has been identified as Tara Niptanatiak. Calgary police released the woman's name with permission of her family. So an autopsy was done to determine the cause of death. And they're saying that the cause of death did not appear suspicious. Excuse me? How did they come? <laughs> what? So my question is, okay, I'm really hoping this was a media, like, oopsie or something. However, officers continue to investigate the circumstances surrounding how she ended up in the waste container, which is suspicious, no? Like, yeah, it's not like she dumpster dived and then... No, no. Like, come on. That infuriated me when I read that. I was like, excuse me? Like, like either there's, like, missing information that really should have been given to the media because in this context, it just sounds strange, or the media took it wrong, or if this is what's going on, I'm just confused. Last week, it was the same thing. It was, like, a super suspicious murder, and they're like, yeah. no, it wasn't. it's not suspicious. And it's like, are you yeah. kidding me? Like, we're investigating, but meh. I feel like if you're investigating, then by nature, it's suspicious. Yeah. Anyway, we hope Tara's family gets answers because this is worst case scenario. You know, your loved one's literally been disposed of. I mean, same thing as Rebecca. Like, it's worst case scenario. Your loved one's been, like, literally tossed away like garbage. What is happening in Canada? I don't know. Are we okay? (laughs) We're not okay. Gosh. I'm hoping that there's some weeks that I'm going to have literally nothing to tell you guys because that means that things are going well. (laughs) The other thing is I can't believe that little girl from Toronto who was found in the dumpster has not been identified yet. Still, eh? No, nothing. So we're going to share her picture again this week when this episode comes out. And we're really hoping, come on, someone has to know who this girl is. It's not like they provided a picture that's hard to understand what she would look like. You know what I mean? Like, you know, sometimes when they do the facial uh, reconstruction, Reconstruction. sometimes it's a bit harder to see what the person would look like. It's clear she's cute as hell. Yeah. Who's missing this little girl? It just like gives me like Melanie Bittersing vibes, yeah. like where like maybe those who she should was care for her abused at home mm-hmm. and like didn't report her missing and not yeah. many people knew about her because she was stuck inside the home or something. Oh, that stuff just like makes my chest tight. Like I. Ugh. The sources for this week's case are a Wikipedia article, a CBC article by John McFarlane, an article from the Montreal Gazette. 
a CTV news article, an episode from the podcast called The Village, The Montreal Murders, Season 3, Episode 1. I also listened to an episode of Canadian True Crime about this case. There's an article from saltwire.com from Nicole Sullivan. There's also a Government of Canada page, as well as an article from The Socialist by Tim McCaskill. And finally, there are several Montreal Gazette articles, one by Alexander Norris, Peggy Curran, and Renee Laurent. Alright, so if you're watching on video and haven't already noticed, we are wearing our Pride gear because this is our Pride episode, and if you are not watching on YouTube and listening on audio, we will post pictures, but we have some cute headgear on, so let's get right into it. Joe Rose was born December 27th of 1965. He was born in North Sydney, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. He was very close with his younger brother, Jeffrey. When the boys were young, the family moved to Quebec. It's reported that Joe was openly gay all through high school in the late 1970s. It was obvious through my research that Joe was unapologetically himself in all aspects of his life. Good for you, Joe. Yes, which is why it makes this the perfect case to talk about this month. He was living as an openly gay teen in the 70s, like I mentioned, and I'm sure that that was not easy. Joe did experience some bullying, but wasn't someone who would let others push him around. He stood up for himself. One of these instances was recounted in a Gazette article that I mentioned earlier. When Joe was 16, he had to beat up a school bully to earn his classmates' respect. One day in the locker room, a few boys were teasing him. One of them actually pushes him up against the wall and insults him. Joe gets dressed and he leaves. But when the bully came out of school, Joe was waiting for him, and he got his retaliation. When he was done, he had one message for his bully. Okay, when I refer to the F word, I'm talking about the gay slur that we will obviously not be saying out loud, but this is what Joe said. Tell everyone an F beat you up. The next day, it was all over. It seems like the bullying kind of stopped. People still bugged him about his openly gay status, but definitely not as much. Which must have been so hard. Like, I just remember being in high school and, like, luckily, like, I I don't think either of us were, like, severely bullied or anything, Mm -hmm. but having the guts basically to be just straight up stand up to your bully like in any circumstance and it worked so good for him throughout his teens he made a lot of friends in the montreal gay community and he quickly became outspoken about gay rights many called him an activist the more he immersed himself in the montreal gay scene the more he loved it and eventually he began working as a sex worker This kind of work did put Joe in some vulnerable positions, but as we just discussed, he had the ability to stand up for himself and fight back. I didn't read of any accounts that he had had bad experiences doing this type of work, but I mean, we can assume that it wasn't all good. There was mixed reporting about his family's acceptance. So his brother and him, so Jeffrey and Joe, were extremely close and they stayed that way throughout their entire lives. I'm assuming from everything I've read, he had no issues with his brother being openly gay. His parents and extended family, I think, had some reservations, but um, ultimately, you know, I think they were always in some sort of contact. Joe eventually graduated high school and was planning his post-secondary education. He got into Dawson College and began studying to become a nurse. I had never heard about Dawson's College, but this is uh, what Wikipedia told me. Dawson's College is an English language public general and vocational college in Montreal, Quebec. 
The college is situated near the heart of downtown Montreal in a former nunnery on approximately 12 acres of green space. I looked up this building and it's like stunning. So yeah, I'm sure it's like a beautiful place downtown Montreal to be going to kind of an old school like this. Like it's yeah, it looks amazing. While studying, Joe started a safe space for LGBT students on campus. It was originally called GLAD, Gays and Lesbians in Dawson. That's what it stood for. Then eventually it changed to Etc. Club, which is still there today. That's amazing. Joe was obviously just mm. an amazing, an amazing man. He also wrote a gay rights column in the college newspaper. In 1985, there was a blood drive at the college and Joe wanted to, you know, do his civic duty and give some blood. Joe donated blood and not long after, he got a letter in the mail from the Red Cross. This letter was informing him that he was HIV positive. He was just 19 years old at the time. I really recommend you guys listening to the episode that I mentioned earlier of the podcast called The Village. It was extremely interesting. They do a lot of really good interviews and it really kind of paints a picture of what the Montreal scene was like in those years. The host of this podcast describes getting this type of news in the 80s as a death sentence. He said that around this time, 80% of people died within two years of a diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about HIV. This is from a Canada government website. Human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, is a virus that attacks the body's immune system. While HIV is a manageable chronic condition, if left untreated, it can cause a weakened immune system or acquired immune deficiency syndrome, known as AIDS. When someone is diagnosed with HIV, other people may have negative attitude and beliefs about that person's behavior, lifestyle, or circumstances in life. These negative associations form what's called a stigma. After hearing the news, Joe seemed to have a fighter's spirit. He didn't want this diagnosis to define him, and he told friends that he was going to survive this. He started having symptoms like fever and exhaustion. When he would start to feel better, he would get sick all over again. As Marie just mentioned, this does really impact your immune system. So even just having a little cold or, you know, you're getting sick a lot easier. It's just, it comes with a lot of complications. And all these complications obviously took a toll on Joe's body. He started losing weight and didn't appear as healthy as he once was. I want to talk a little bit about the AIDS crisis in Canada. This next part I took directly from the Socialist article. In the early 1980s, the nightmare of AIDS broke like a tsunami over the gay communities in Canada in major cities. Young, healthy gay men were suddenly and inexplicably dying. No one knew the cause of the epidemic. There was no treatment and there was no cure. With medical science impotent and government largely silent, gay communities were mostly thrown back on their own resources. The first wave of AIDS activisms established organizations offering support and counseling, hospice care for the dying, and once HIV had been identified, prevention campaigns urging safer sex. For those of you who haven't caught on already, HIV can be transmitted through sexual activities. In March of 1982, Canada would see its first HIV diagnosis. This event would spur a significant amount of activism, as I just mentioned, in the LGBTQ community. It would also be the same year that the term acquired immunodeficiency syndrome would be coined. As Marie said earlier, there was a lot of stigma and misinformation fueling the public dialogue. AIDS would receive the title as the quote-unquote gay disease, and public opinion would quickly dissuade politicians from adequately providing resources for those living with the condition. So these communities were literally, you know, protesting, fighting for their lives to try and get government agencies, you know, even the medical world to kind of recognize how big of a crisis this was. People were dying by the thousands. 
At the time that Joe was diagnosed, there was no approved treatment for the medication. The only thing that Joe could do was buy an unapproved drug that could only be purchased on the black market. This is a very scary thought that this is the only thing possible that he can do to even start to feel better and this is what probably hundreds of gay men were doing in Montreal at the time. And obviously the drug was extremely expensive. People needed it and whoever was selling it knew that. He had to work a lot and, you know, sacrifice buying other things to just be able to afford the drug to feel well. Eventually, money got tighter and he basically had to pick between the basic living expenses or medication. He then decided he had to take a break. Joe had to make the difficult decision to drop out of college. He was just trying to enjoy his life. He was on disability since he couldn't work, but when he felt well enough, he worked as a DJ in gay bars, which sounds so much fun. Mm-hmm. Good for him. <laughs> like, yeah, just like living the nightlife in Montreal and the gay scene in the 80s. He really was, you know, making the best of a horrible situation. Mm-hmm. Just like he had been an activist for gay rights, he continued to this when it came to his battle with AIDS. In December of 1988, in Montreal, there was a candlelight vigil for World AIDS Day. Joe showed up, of course, and he was outspoken and proud. He was wearing a shirt that said, person living with AIDS on the front, and on the back, something like, surviving, thriving, and living. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we'll put a picture up, obviously, but there's a picture of him in this white shirt over his winter coat, obviously, because it's December. And it's like one of those shirts you used to make at, like, camp. Yeah. <laughs> with your Sharpie. It's just, like, written in Sharpie, like, loud and proud. He's standing in front of a podium. There's a microphone there. He's probably being interviewed. Um, but it, it's really an amazing picture. Also in 1988, during the federal election, he stood up at an all-candidates meeting, demanding extra care for AIDS patients. At this point in Joe's life, he was only 23 years old, and his AIDS had progressed to the end-of-life phase. He spent a lot of his time living at the local AIDS hospice. Wow. For being that young and in the health condition that he is, I'm amazed by what he's determined to do. And it just makes me think of like all the amazing people that we probably, that we not probably, that we did lose to the AIDS crisis. And like if, if people had listened and done something earlier, how many more of people like Joe that we would still have yeah. with us? Joe was struggling with a reoccurring ammonia. He had lost clumps of hair. The rest of his hair that he still had, he dyed pink. Yay! And, Aww, <laughs> I know. I love. <laughs> I hadn't written that oh. in my notes anywhere, but I had read it multiple times. But whatever hair he had left, it was pink and probably like bright pink. Love that. <laughs> Again, he had severe weight loss, and it's reported that he weighed almost only fit, like around fifty pounds, which is. Crazy. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I obviously get all my information from several different sources and I try to kind of like cross-reference to make sure that there's whatever I'm saying has been said in two places, not just one. So this, I'm pretty sure, is at this point in the timeline, he weighed about 50 pounds. But, you know, give or take. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if it's true, he couldn't afford to lose any more weight. On the night of Saturday, March 18th, 1989, Joe and his friend Sylvain decide to go out to a gay club. Joe had asked his younger brother Jeffrey, who was 20 at the time, to come out, but Jeffrey was busy doing something else, so he kind of said, you know, another night. Which I also think is just amazing that Jeffrey would just, like, tag along Mm -hmm. on these nights. Like, it's the relationship between the two brothers really just seems so amazing to me. So Joe and Sylvain have their fun, and after midnight in the early morning hours of March 19th, they decide to leave. The two plan on taking the bus home and home at this point for joe is the aids hospice because even though he had felt well enough to push through a night out he was still very sick 
The two friends get on a bus and they take a seat. Also on that bus, it's reported that there was a group of teenagers. Now, the number of teens vary. It's like 10 to 20. So really, this is like a huge difference, I find. But they're not all involved in what's going to happen next, from what I can tell. But apparently, the group had been thrown out of a club that they were at that night and had maybe done some like convenience store robbery after that or whatever. Basically, some shithead teenagers that probably shouldn't be out this late that are now on their way home as well. This group of garbage teenagers starts to harass Joe and Sylvain. They're screaming homophobic slurs at them. They grab Joe's hat off of his head, and Joe and Sylvain decide to just get up and move. But, I mean, I feel like we all know Joe at this point, and he's not the type to just kind of let things slide. So, but but at the same time, you know, it's even, like, for anyone, it's so late, returning from the club, you've been drinking, you're kind of just like, this is not going to go anywhere good, so I'm yeah. just going to get up and move. I'm sure he's tired, he's, oh, like, not sure. necessarily feeling his greatest, and... For sure. When Joe and Sylvain move down the aisle, one of the teens tries to trip Joe and then demands that Joe apologizes to him. I cannot stand teenagers like that. I, <laughs> I cannot. I know. I like, know. I'm scared of teenagers nowadays because they're <laughs> ruthless. So they're they ruthless. Yeah. Teens are ruthless. I think preteens are worse, but teens are ruthless. There's just, like, no sense of, like, consequence or anything mm. like that. Joe tells him to go to hell and, and keeps on walking. Another teen then says, we'll get him when he gets off at Frontenac, which is the last station, the final stop on the bus's route. So tensions are building on the bus, okay? And, you're, you know, everyone here, like I am, obviously is thinking, if you're in public transit, how do you signal for help? Well, I was just going to say, especially back then, like now I think there's like emergency buttons that you could press to alert the driver. But back then, I feel like all you could do is yell to the bus driver to stop and I mean depending how bad the situation called 911 or the cops or something but so thankfully they're like one step ahead of that at this time so there's an emergency system and in those kinds of situation there's two things the bus driver can do so it's a woman and she can pull the warning sign I'm assuming it's a pull I have no idea maybe it's a button push pull whatever a warning sign that goes off outside of the bus to try to notify others so past drivers passing by that there's a problem no way i yes. love that yeah i don't even know if buses now do that i mean yeah i wouldn't I know how know. to recognize it if a bus alarm went off and i was driving by it i wouldn't not that i could do anything about it but i wouldn't <laughs> know how to recognize it the other thing they can do is that if that doesn't work there's an automatic call bell to the police which do is, they have that nowadays man i'm like they must they must they must wow that's awesome So the bus driver sees this kind of brewing in the back and she does the first step. She pushes the kind of alert to let others know that there's the situation going on on the bus. So at this point, I think that this is still going on on the bus, but I think they're kind of stopped at Frontenac station. It's kind of unclear. It feels to me like it's like on and off the bus is how the situation kind of like goes. But the verbal altercation or whatever you want to call it becomes a physical assault. A group of the teenagers begin to kick Joe. They kick him, they hit him on the head, and then one of them pulls out a knife. And Joe gets stabbed several times. I I have to tell you guys that I almost didn't cover this case. I had to cover it because of how how amazing of a person he obviously is. I almost didn't cover it because I'm so sick of these gang beatings. Like, what is going on? We've covered several cases where groups of teenagers get together and murder someone. Like, I'm so sick of them. I'm taking a huge break after this. Like, we're not covering one of those cases for a long time because it just feels so surreal. Who does this? 
Yeah, like who raises these kinds of monsters? It's a different time and a lot of people had a lot of hate in their heart. That is not an excuse, especially not for murder. But I really hope that people are having kids and bringing them to pride parades and educating them mm. on different kinds of love and how love is just love. And But that wasn't common in households. But even then, doesn't mean that you have to, like, anyway, we, yeah, we get each other. The bus driver immediately realizes that she's made a mistake and she tries to get involved, but then she also gets attacked by one of the teens. Oh my God. I told you teens are crazy. <laughs> Thankfully, Sylvain was able to kind of escape with minor injuries. I'm sure he was in some sort of altercation, but the group seemed to really have focused all of their energy on Joe. Joe died on that bus. All the teens had fled and Sylvain was trying to resuscitate him when police arrived. Joe died around 4.30 a.m. and Sylvain was rushed to the hospital. As I said, he only had minor injuries. How traumatic for Sylvain. For everyone, but like he's just on a, on a night out with his guy friend and just later on he's trying to resuscitate his dead friend off a bus after seeing him being brutally assaulted by strangers. It's just so sad. I read a lot about kind of the what Montreal was like around this time and, and there was a big spike of violence against the LGBTQ community so like this this obviously is an extreme incident but I people were mm -hmm. getting jumped and beat all the time yeah like it was a crisis investigators obviously had to tell Joe's family they were aware that Joe's time was limited with them because of his AIDS diagnosis but I mean hearing that a loved one has died this way must mm -hmm. have been awful Joe's friend Peter is interviewed in the podcast The Village. He says a bunch of amazing and interesting things, which is why I said like you, you guys should all go listen to it. But really the one thing that like gave me chills, he just said homophobia killed Joe. Yeah. Jeffrey, Joe's brother, was interviewed for a Montreal Gazette article, and this is what he had to say. Joey had asked me to join him at the Montreal Gay Dance Club named Cox, also known as KOX. But I told him I couldn't go because my band was working a gig in St. Tehais. The first thing I did when I learned my brother was dead was go over to my friend Don's place and I cried in his basement. I'll never forget that. Investigators worked hard at trying to identify the teens. Some witnesses came forward. The murder took place in a very public environment. Like people were bound to have seen it and recognized or at least been able to describe some of these murderers. Soon after, four people were arrested and charged. In 1990, the four people who were arrested and charged were sentenced. We only have the name of one of these people because only one was over 18 years old. So one 15-year-old was sentenced to three years in a youth home. Another got 11 months. A 14-year-old got six months. And the 19-year-old called Patrick Moyes was convicted in adult court and sentenced to seven years in prison. A superior court justice called Jean-Guy Riopel said during the sentencing that he was sending a message to violent youth by imposing a seven-year prison term to Patrick Moyes, one of their participants in the fatal stabbing of Joe Rose. I'm sorry, but but how is that sending a message? I know. Seven years? And the other ones? Months? A youth home? Excuse me? I know. Jean-Guy, you could have done a bit better. <laughs> Jean-Guy, we needed more. We needed more Jean-Guy. But he said people have a right to feel safe in the transit system. And I get what he's trying to say, but I just feel like it's just not giving me what I need. Those sentences are not giving a safe feeling no. at all. Later, Joe's parents sued in a civil suit. They claimed that the bus driver did not activate the emergency bus signal. 
and the city's transit commission was eventually ordered to pay them $25,000 in damages. The justice in this suit said the following. It is clear that the attack was foreseeable from the beginning and that it was imminent from the moment the two victims were not allowed to leave the bus. So I'm assuming by saying this that the group of teens that were involved, whether it was the four, I'm sure others were not innocent either, were kind of blocking the exit. I will never understand how teens that young, how can you be that disgusting? Yeah, I, I'm telling you, we've covered, we've covered three of these. We're at episode 27. Uh, yeah. or 28. 28. We're episode 28. We've covered three of these. That's why I was like, I don't know if I, I don't know if my like mental health can take another like teenage gang beating turned to murder. But for Joe, we had to do it. Joe sounds like the most amazing man in this world. In a CBC article, Jeffrey talks about Joe and he calls him a loving person and a pain in the ass who often took him. I love that. I know. Brotherly love. It's like honesty. I love you, but you're my pain in my ass. Yeah, exactly. And he says that Joe would often take him into his world, into the gay village. The following is a quote from him. He didn't really have a hateful bone in his body, never fought back. He was proud of who he was, and he wasn't ashamed of being gay or being different. He was just happy to be himself. In an article from the Gazette, Jeffrey also said, I was one of the first people Joe told that he had AIDS. He wasn't ashamed of it. He was proud. That's the way he was. He's my brother. He did what he liked to do, and he made a name for himself. After Joe's death, over 200 people gathered at the Frontenac station where Joe was murdered. Friends spoke and crowds screamed. Everyone who attended was there for Joe and for gay rights. They were there to fight back against the homophobia that was growing in their city. There was also a vigil set up by Joe's friends and family, and they also had a funeral. After Joe's murder, there was an uprising in activists who began to, you know, harvest their energy into fighting against the violence that was happening in their city. Joe's murder had a big impact on the Montreal AIDS Conference in June of 1989. Protesters came down from New York City to join. During the AIDS Conference at this time, it was really only politicians and medical professionals, but the community felt like they should be a part of it. They were the ones suffering and they wanted their voices to be heard. Protesters stormed the conference. They took over the stage and they basically took over the entire thing. And after that, activists and members of the community became part of AIDS conferences going forward. A lot of this was inspired by Joe's murder and the outrage that the community felt. So this month and every month we celebrate people like Joe for standing up for what they believe in and being unapologetically themselves. And I wanted to give a little bit of information on how to be an ally. I think a lot of people feel like maybe if they're not part of the community, then how can I help? So this is from a Government of Canada website page. So first of all, share your pronouns. By sharing your pronouns, you can help people use more inclusive language and create a safe space for others. Here are a few situations where you can do this. Email signatures, which is very I love, easy. I love Yeah, super easy to do with work, especially if you work on a computer at a desk, you can do this easily. In team meetings, organizational charts, and introducing yourself to new colleagues or new people. Use gender-inclusive language. When you are not certain of someone's pronouns or when you are addressing a large group of people in person, virtually, or in writing, you can use terms that are inclusive to all genders. For example, use someone's first and last name instead of gender titles like Miss, Mr., Miss, Mrs. Use they and their instead of his or he or she or her or you know, all of that stuff, they and theirs is actually extremely easy to use. If you can just swap it out, then that's great. Use partner or spouse instead of husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, which I think is becoming more and more common anyway. 
Mm -hmm. I agreed. Demonstrate your support and participate in activities. By demonstrating your support for the LGBTQ2 plus communities, you can network with other allies and collaborate on ideas on how to support and how to take action. Promote and participate on events, display your pride flag or your pride gear all year long. And lastly, speak up. By speaking up when you hear or see discrimination or exclusionary behavior, you are standing in support and solidarity with the LGBTQ2 communities and contributing to a safer space for everyone. An example of this would be to say something when someone has a demeaning joke or something offensive or stereotypical. Um, you know, say something when you hear exclusionary comments and expressions. This is a big one too. If you're a workplace or whatever, or you're at the doctor's office and you're filling out like a form that has these very like strict gender boxes that you have to click off or these very like kind of rigid you, you guys all know mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Say something, whether it's your work, do something to change it, whether it's your doctor's office, your dentist, wherever you are, say something. And we are definitely not experts on the subject. So if anyone wants to send us more information, send us, you know, any reading materials, uh, we'd love to continue to educate ourselves and we can share a ton of stuff on our social media. So we welcome all of that. So this week we will be donating to Canadian Aid Society. This is from their website. Created in 1986, the Canadian AIDS Society, also known as CAS, represents our members at the national level, guided by the voice of people living with HIV and AIDS. We are a movement built at the grassroots level, and we are proud of those roots. We are devoted to the idea of people working together with a certain knowledge that the stakes have never been higher, and the humble notion that we can work together to dramatically change the outcomes of HIV in Canada. CAS represents community-based HIV and AIDS organizations across the country. Our objective is to strengthen the response to HIV and AIDS in Canada and enrich the lives of people and communities living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. If you would like to contribute to the Canadian AIDS Society, the link to donate will be in our description in Instagram and TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Happy, Happy Pride, Pride Month. Month.